the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What's the value of humility? And later, the scientific reasons why I can't stop going to Disney World. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We hope you're enjoying this Wednesday evening. Brian said earlier the weather is finally starting to cool, at least this weekend. So hopefully you are headed into an enjoyable fall uh, if you've missed any of our show, we'd love to invite you to go back and catch up on the podcast. We've said this before, but it's a daily podcast where we're taking kind of our faith perspectives and nuance and interacting with the headlines of the day. Yes. We'd love for you to catch up. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We also enjoy engaging with you on social media. We're at Common Good Talk on Facebook. Okay, uh, Brian, Micah Fries, has he been on our show before? He was one of I my professors. Okay, he was one of my professors at Wheaton. Was he really? Uh, uh-huh. Just for a class, like one, like one section of a class. Gotcha. Um, he's a discipleship guy. I, th- I think he's a pastor. Um, so. But he, um, he said this for a while now. This was on Twitter or X, whatever you're supposed to call it these We're days. We're still calling it Twitter. Okay. For a while now, I've been increasingly convinced that humility is the first expectation for the character of Christian leaders. Mm. Then he says, I'm also convinced that our American Christian context doesn't encourage humility. Mm. It encourages the opposite. And then he says, I've been guilty of participating in it. So I, I was struck by this. And let me kind of tell you why. So when I was in Dominican last week, I had a conversation with a missionary woman there. She's Puerto Rican, been there for 12 years. And Brian, when I mean she's a missionary, I mean, she is like serving the least of these. Like Mm -hmm. she is in the poorest of the poor places. And also she's on like these government leadership boards in Dominican trying to raise up leaders. So she's a boss in one sense. And also like, doing the work of Jesus. Okay. Well, she was having a conversation with me. She'd never met a female pastor before, but she's actually been called to, or feels like she might be called to pastoral ministry, but just really outside of her paradigm. So she had a lot of questions for me about it, but here's what was interesting. She said to me, I, I don't know. She was like, this might sound unintelligent. I don't know how to explain this to you, but she said, I have an idea of a pastor and I don't fit that mold. And I was like, oh, tell me what your idea of a pastor. You're, Can oh, you get? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> she said he's a very charismatic, mm. a powerful speaker. And he's on a big stage. And this is literally this like Puerto Rican woman serving yep. in the slums in Dominican. He's on a stage on Sunday morning and he's mm-hmm. like, you know, he's preaching the Bible and he's running around on the stage and he's like really, really powerful. And he's kind of yelling. And, and she was like, I don't fit that. So I just don't think, and she meant this very sincerely. I don't think I am called to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And that to me connects to what Micah Fries was saying, because I, 
I think what has happened, and we know this very acutely in the States, I was surprised to hear her talk about it, that we've like traded what it means to be a humble shepherd yeah. for being this like charismatic showman on a stage. Yeah. And uh, look, there's value in these powerful preachers. You and I listen to them. We interact with their sermons. Some we know have gone way too far. They've been corrupt and toxic, mm-hmm. and it's only been that. But to me, it was kind of devastating to think, wow, she has one idea of, right. of what a pastor is. And it's not this humility that Micah Fries is talking about, right? And so we talked a little bit mm-hmm. about like, there's apostles, there's pastors, there's shepherds, there's evangelists, there's teachers. What if the church looked different? Like we, we had some great conversations about that, but that was kind of striking to me that that's all she knew of. This is what it means to be a pastor. It's super sad and right? not surprising because right? what do we always see? What do we hold up? What is kind of the, mm-hmm. the thing? Um, it is, and I know Twitter is a bad spot to, um, to make your, uh, conclusions, but at the same time, there is, it, what what concerns me, Aubrey, is not just the picture of the pastor that we're putting out there, mm-hmm. and even more than just a pastor, than like the the Christian leader, pastor, mm. or theologian, whatever. It's that like there's a conversation that feels like it's going on in evangelicalism, where it's like there really is a looking down upon humility. Mm. There really is. It's seen as weakness. Yeah. There's supposed to be a kind of a bombastic nature, this rough, uh, you know, kind of symbolized by Mark Driscoll. But it's that's been what also has been held up over the years. Yeah. So not just charisma. Right. Not just, oh, I can own a stage and all this stuff, mm-hmm. but also somebody who's a visionary and uh, and mm. going to gonna fight the fight and going mm. to like – you know, we're going to take that hill and all, all of those in and of themselves aren't wrong necessarily, but they've created this picture yeah. that you've just described. Yeah. And people out there might be like, well, what's wrong with that? That seems like a really effective pastor. And that's what we need in our day. I would, I would suggest that what's wrong with that is Philippians chapter two, mm. when Paul says, mm. you treat one another, do everything like Jesus did mm. with the humility of Jesus. And then Paul goes basically, do you need me to describe the humility of Jesus? Here it is. Right. And he goes and you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. So it's not us going, you know what we need? We need more humble pastors. We need more humble yeah. authors and professors. Yeah. And we need yeah. more humble Christians. It's Jesus. It's it's the Bible. That it's says literally that. Jesus. Yeah. It's literally, they've said that, you know, Paul holds up to the Philippians mm. who are facing great persecution. Mm. Paul holds up to the Philippians. Do it like Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, as best you can look at them. No, he says, uh, in how you treat each other, do it like Jesus yeah, did. Yeah, right. Like we always, you remember we used to wear the bracelets, what would Jesus well, do? Uh-huh. This is actually the one where that fits. Yeah. Where it goes, what's a pastor supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like the humility of Jesus. Mm. What's a Christian leader, whatever that means, supposed mm. to look like? The humility of Jesus. And anywhere where it doesn't, there's some fraud there. There's repentance. Yeah, needed. There's I think this. that's and, it, Brian. And we've, I think she's right. We've we've completely reversed that in the age of big stages and podcasts yeah, and yeah. uh, got to fight the evil like right. progressives and this right. and that and we've we've lost what it means to be humble like Jesus. And one of the things I was saying to her was like, I feel like the enemy has used this to to distract 
and to um, like cause like conflict between Christians rather than keeping us on mission. Like when a, when a woman who's literally giving her life for the gospel and the kingdom feels like she is not equipped or empowered to be in pastoral ministry because she's not that that's wrong. Like that to me, like the, the ripple effects of that kind of like evangelical industrial, powerful pastor on the stage thing. Like you and I have talked a lot about the damage of that to see it from like a third world perspective, a woman who probably is the most faithful Christian I've ever like seen in real life. Like her feeling disqualified, like that's evil. That's wrong. And this isn't even just about her being a woman. It's that we have like disqualified these called and faithful Christians who actually are living out Philippians too. Nobody's perfect, but like living in a way of Jesus, a lot of us have never even had to. Right, right. And they don't feel like they can do ministry. I don't know. It was. It also speaks to mm. a little, the humility is the big thing here. Yeah, yeah. But it also speaks to the value we've put on charisma and presence yeah. and literally the ability to give a sermon and a speech. Well, and think about that too, because here we are in a third world country and yep. she has access to, and I understand third world countries have the internet, blah, 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 blah. Actually, actually our friend at, our friend at X had just brought in Starlink to uh, Dominican Republic while we were there. But, <laughs> oh, <that's> um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's a, it's definitely something to think about later on. I want to talk about this visionary leader thing. Cause I think that's an interesting conversation to bring up. Uh, right. We'll have to do that. And, another show this week. All right. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Brian, we've talked about this before, but it came up uh, from Scott McKnight's Substack. He's He's got a new book out with his daughters, kind of the, I guess, part two to church called Tav. It's called yeah. Pivot. And it's the priorities, practices, and powers that can transform your church into a Tov culture, Tav culture. And he's talking about this concept that we saw a lot with toxic pastors, the fake apology, which is basically not really an apology. Uh, He says the fake apologies are not issued out of confession or repentance, but here's how uh, they describe a fake apology. They condemn the victim. They appease the audience. They attach excuses and try to justify inappropriate behavior. And he basically says that like institutionally, a lot of, of the bigger churches where the pastor got caught mm-hmm. kind of did these like fake apologies. And apparently this is from the work of Wade Mullen, who wrote something called what I observed when institutions try to apologize and how they can do better. But um, here's, here's some examples. This is really interesting. The apology that condemns the other person classic example of this i'm sorry you feel that way yep 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 (laughs) that's the one like i'm sorry you got mad something like that it's where it's actually you you don't admit any wrongdoing at all basically you're sort of subtly accusing the other person of being too sensitive right or or, yeah i totally get that one and that one is is usually just a terrible one is there ever a place for that one in your opinion though like what if i did something okay let's hear it hurt your feelings right like i said something yeah but i didn't think i was wrong right should i apologize to you as your friend 
because you're it hurt your feelings or is it or does it does the apology need to wait until on your side until I realize I did something wrong. But if I never think I did something wrong in that situation, do I just never apologize? Does that make sense? It's the old intent question. Like does intent matter or does impact impact or intent? That's ultimately the question. Yeah. Should I apologize for hurting your feelings? Even if I don't think I did anything wrong. I think it depends on the relationship, right? Like if it's Carrie every day, you apologize for hurting her feelings (laughs) all the time without question. You know what I mean? And I don't, and I don't mean that like some people would say that as a joke, like happy life, happy wife i mean it's your partner it's your person it's your best friend like you don't want to hurt their feelings so you're like oh my gosh i hurt your feelings i'm so sorry that wasn't my intention at all tell me how that hurt your feelings and how i can do better like now that takes a lot of grace for a spouse to do that to another spouse but i think all day long it's a different thing if it's like a random person you barely know and you like walked by them the wrong way and that hurt their feelings i would say in that and by random person i mean an acquaintance or something in that sense i think i'd be like no i'm sorry your feeling got hurt that wasn't my intention and then you move on like you're not going to try to do the repair work so i hear what you're saying feels like a level of intimacy to me but the point here is obviously if you're a toxic pastor and you've abused people, you can't be like, I'm sorry, their feelings got hurt. You right, know? right, right, right. Like, d- I guess depending on the level of ownership or relationship and leadership is how you like apologize by owning what you've done. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, are there times for that? Maybe. It, Maybe. it is It is okay. an age-old debate about intent versus impact, for sure. Intent versus um, impact. I've not heard it put that way. That's Yeah. Good. Okay. okay. Uh, here's another one. An apology that um, appeases. Mm-hmm. Listen to this one, because this one was new for me. It's not an attempt to do all that is necessary to right wrongs, but an attempt to offer only what is needed to stop an outcry. So that one feels like it's more like words, like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But then you're not actually going to do anything to bring change. Yeah. What do you think about that one? So that is the old let me off the hook if I say mm. sorry. Right? I think at the heart of this, your intent one is important. At the heart of this is don't apologize unless you actually mean it. Mm. Like, if I go, okay. I did something that made people mad. The best way to get them off my back is to apologize, even Mm. though I don't mean it at all. That feels disingenuous, lying, really. Yeah. 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 So I I guess at the heart of all of this is even if you disagree that they should have been this hurt or they took it wrongly or this, have that conversation and be like, yeah. I'm sorry that you were hurt or I'm sorry that had this result. Let's talk about this and kind of work this out. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the let me off the hook is obviously a bad idea. Yeah, that's that <laughs> like, one's... What can I say to get, get you uh-huh. off my back? That one's really interesting. I think I probably use that in situations where I'm over it and I'm like, fine, I'll just apologize, you know? Okay, yeah. this one I think is funny. This is the fake apology that I always think of where there's excuses. Like where you're like, I'm sorry, it was never our intention. It was outside of our control. It was beyond my ability to... Like, I... Those might be true. That's what's kind of tricky. Like sometimes those excuses are like, well, here's why this happened. You're trying to explain it. But at the end of the day, it ends up coming across as just like justifying behavior. And especially when you're talking about a leader sin, right? Right. It kind of suggests like, oh, it wasn't that bad that that woman got 
abused, right? Or it's her fault. She should have known not to be alone with the male pastor or something like that. That's what I don't like about, that's where I think the excuses attached is not an actual apology. Like there may be a time for conversations about why things happen, but when you apologize, I think you just, you take all the onus that I am so sorry that shouldn't have happened, period. So I think at the heart of this is this, as I read these, because when I first saw that McKnight wrote this, my first thought was like, man, are we going to raise the bar so high on apology mm, that like mm. now no apology is is like good enough yeah, or whatever? Yeah. I think as I read this, what, what, what really comes at the heart of this is if you're going to apologize, mean it. And if you don't mean it, then don't apologize. Stand by what you've done. Yeah, Stand by right. what you said. Right. Like if again, you and I are friends. If I have, if I feel like I need to say something difficult to you, and I say it, and it hurts your feelings, yeah. but I really mean it, and I think it needed to be said, I yeah. shouldn't apologize right. to you. Right. I guess I could say, "Hey, I'm really sorry that you, you know, that that it hurt your feelings," but it's not really an apology. I think yeah. what. The apology, I suppose, is whether it be in marriage, in friendship, uh, in jobs, in I want the the apology can't be I got to do this for PR or to get mm, myself off the hook. There you go. Yeah, I think all of those could be put under this umbrella. Of yeah, if you're like, I guess we just because someone's feelings are hurt or just because it causes some Mm -hmm. controversy or just because it Mm -hmm. rattles some cages doesn't mean you need to apologize for it. So I suggest before you apologize for anything, go, do I actually believe the apology I'm about to say? Mm, Like, do I actually have repentant, a repentant heart or want to take ownership? Yeah. And if all you're sorry for is the hurt feelings, then apologize for that. Yeah, sure. If you're sorry for your actions, then apologize for that. And how the other person hears it now becomes on them. And it's, I think a lot of times it's like, oh, you better apologize so people aren't mad at you anymore. And totally. That doesn't feel like the right bar. I wonder if there's a way to say like, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. That takes so. that takes more ownership than I'm sorry your feelings got hurt. Do you know what right. I mean? Like the difference right. is like right. sort of blaming and one is taking responsibility. Okay, real quick. Here's what Wade Mullen says is like a good apology. Okay. Does the apology uh, surrender? So uh, does it give up the desire to offend? So simply, I owe you an apology. Here's why. Does it have confession that you're naming each wrong to acknowledge fully what has happened? I was wrong when I. Uh, oh, does it have ownership? This is spelling the word score, by the way. Ownership. <laughs> acknowledge the active role that I had in the wrongdoing. I take complete responsibility for X, Y, Z. Recognition. Specifically mm. state the harm caused. I see how my actions caused you harm. X, Y, Z. Uh, and then empathy, make a true connection with the weight of what has been done. I am filled with grief and remorse. So anyway, those are interesting. Score, if you are doing a good apology or not, <laughs> I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. All go. right. Coming in next, Brian, we're going to get into my psychology. LA Times did a whole research project on scientific reasons why you can't stop going to Disneyland. And uh, it's really about nostalgia more than anything else. But I thought that would be a fun conversation to have when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Okay, Brian, I saw this on LA Times. And uh, this is so funny because this connects, I think, to my psychology. But there's a deeper conversation in it. 
this is the scientific reason why you can't stop going to Disneyland. For my sake, it might be Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's what it said. They actually did some scientific research on why people keep going back and spending the money. And each year, like tens of millions of people, even though it is increasing in expense, continue to just go back again and again and again. They have this sort of Disney addiction. They actually interviewed somebody who said, one time we put off our son's dental work to be able to <laughs> afford our <laughs> annual trip to Disneyland. Listen to this. One uh, analysis showed that 18% of Disney park goers go into debt to pay for their Disney question or their Disney vacation. Of course they do. Listen to this. I didn't know this is a guy named Jeff Wrights. He lives in Huntington Beach. He famously visited Disneyland 2,995 days in a row. They talk about how these habits in these places can become uh, an addiction, obviously. Um, Disney's six U.S.-based theme parks are visited more annually than the next 13 most popular U.S.-based theme parks combined, which I oh, believe wow. that. So the question is why? Okay, why is uh, Disney so addicting? And here are some of the reasons that they give. One, travel craving. This is really interesting. They're starting to do new research on this concept of travel craving. They say that behavioral psychologists and cognitive scientists believe that a yearning for travel can fit mm. the clinical understanding of cravings, so like other cravings you'd have. They say a strong desire to modify ongoing cognitive experience in ways that don't only relate to addiction. So they say our brain circuitry is wired to both desire things and to have our desires resolved temporarily with action. So people who describe their love of Disney travel this way are craving not just a trip to Disneyland, but a yearning that they can't quite like get met. And that's why they keep going again and again and again. So it's like a, an, an actual addiction in some ways. So uh, that makes some sense. I think uh, so too. I, I will often – so it's not a Disney World thing at all for me, but yeah. it's a uh, – if if I've gone too long without travel, without mm. going away as a family, without mm. – it can be really small. It can be going to the Dells, right? But it could be yeah. like if we've gone a long time without doing that as a family, I start to get really antsy and like we got to mm. go do that. Like let's go do – so. so there's a little bit of that. Apparently, for those of you like yourself, Disney World is the ultimate. That's what makes this. This is what what reaches those heights. So, uh, oh man, I, it I is. Think I get the longing. Yeah, the longing part I think makes sense whether it's Disney or not. What's funny to me is when I get stressed, I immediately go on the Disney website and start planning a vacation. Now, I I tend to see the bottom line and say, never mind, I can't afford this right now. But it is so funny. funny. It's kind of a go-to. Okay, this one's interesting. And I actually know that Disney does this on purpose because I did some research for my grad school uh, work on Disney. But um, smelling, so sense, right? Uh, mm. These yearnings for travel, they're fed by a number of factors, but smells is very high on the list because they trigger, smells trigger memories and positive emotions, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, lots of studies on this, how one sense of smell links to memory and emotion, that kind of thing. Disney gets this, okay? It has filled its parks with machines called smellitizers. These no are way. apparatuses, yes, carefully disguised or 
hidden away throughout attractions, shops, and walkways, each pumping out soothing and familiar scents to passersby. So um, you can read more about this. People say that it's brainwashing people, obviously. Other people say it's ingenious marketing. But um, there are now candles you can purchase that uh, <laughs> capture like Pirates of the Caribbean or no the Haunted way. Mansion or Soaring Around the World. But basically, they pump these scents all throughout their rides. They pump them all throughout Disneyland. And some of it's popcorn. Some of it's the smell of oranges. Some of it's the smell of the ocean. And so anytime you like smell that in life... You obviously want to go back to Disney or what I'm finding is I have some Disney friends who keep buying the candles because they want to be reminded of their time at Disney. Isn't that wild? That's that's but we get this. There's think about the things in your life that link to smells. Mm. Um, So uh, I was back. It was Wheaton. I don't know if you, you were out of town, but it was Wheaton's homecoming the other day. You and I okay. both Wheaton College alums. Yep. I did. It was. It wasn't for my class or your class. One yeah. of the special years. But uh, I went to the football game. Right. My son. We love to go to. We still go to Wheaton games. A beautiful day outside. There are smells on campus mm. in certain locations mm. where it transports you almost back to that time. Wow. Right? Uh, like a, a couple months ago, I had to go back for something at Glen Ellen Bible Church where I used to work. I haven't worked there for 13 years. Yeah. I was in one area of the church and there was a smell and it was like I work there again. Come it on. Like Come on. Again. Come you on. You remember when you would go to college and then yeah. you'd go home and yep. you'd open the front door yep. and there was immediately a smell. The last one I can think of. I've told you many times we'll often go. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law have a cabin outside the Dells, and we love it. We go with them. Fine. And it's like you go there, and immediately kind of your stresses go away because you yeah. know you're just going to play and read. There is such a distinct smell when you open the front door, and you're like, I'm back. For vacation. I'm and back. Here. Yeah. Just, this idea of smell, I think there needs to be more research on it because I think it's so much stronger than our other senses when it comes to mm. linking. And so it doesn't shock me that Disney World has figured it out better than anybody to where they're literally. Isn't it like literally pumping with sense? Yeah, it actually makes funny. me think like as churches, should we be like, you know, yeah. this is maybe where the Anglican church has it right with their incense or the high churches have it right their incense. Yes. Like, do we need to be lighting some specific candle that smells really nice and would like draw people back to church? Remind maybe. Them. It reminds them. Yeah. Okay. The last uh, couple feeding peer influence. So basically w- with social media, you see people on their own trips to Disney world, they're eating the food, they're riding the rides and you're like, I want to go back. I miss it. Yep. And then the biggest one, which I think is so fascinating is nostalgia, like the power of nostalgia. This is what I did some of my research on is like, there are lots of people who will go to Disney on their, let's say their 50th birthday. They'll ride the same ride they rode when they were five years old and they leave the ride bawling their eyes out because it reminds them of being there with their parent who passed or it brings, it evokes a childhood, like happiness and joy. They haven't experienced in a while. The power of like nostalgia, they say helps improve your mood creates feelings of optimism, gives you stronger social bonds with other people who have that same nostalgia. And then it reduces your anxiety as well. So of course people are going to 
flock to these wherever it is, but especially Disney where they can experience more nostalgia and share it with other people who have that same sense of nostalgia for Disney. So, so fascinating. So this just makes me think I need to book my next trip. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.